Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving news from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Dralani Tulo, Wisani Matabula and Neto Chimani. In our top stories on Africa Digest this hour... South Africa's Constitutional Court refers the request for a motion of no confidence secret ballot back to Parliament. And Amnesty International says the EU must stop cooperating with the Libyan Coast Guard in returning refugees. In economics news, copper production in Africa's second biggest producer of the metal expected to rise to 850,000 tonnes. And in sports news, South African rugby coach announces his team ahead of the third test clash against France. But first up, the news with Shalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good afternoon. At least 20 people have been ki- 12 people rather have been killed in northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo in heavy firefights between the army and militia fighters. Reports say several students sitting exams were wounded in an explosion at a school. The fighting follows a breakout by more than 900 inmates. Many suspected militia men from Beni's main prison this month. Worsening security in the vast Central African nation has raised fears of a return to civil war. South Africa's parliament says it will abide by the constitutional court's ruling that National Assembly Speaker Balegambete will be responsible for the decision on whether a motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma takes place via secret ballot. In a statement, parliament says the speaker had no personal or in-principle opposition to the use of a secret ballot. The national legislature says the judgment affirms Mbete's argument that the rulers of both the constitution and the National Assembly failed to make provision for a president's removal via secret ballot. It added that now that the Speaker has the powers under the Constitution to conduct a no-confidence motions through secret ballot, she will accordingly ensure the judgment is given effect. Meanwhile, opposition UDM says it feels vindicated by the ruling. UDM leader Bantu Olomisa says the ruling allows ANC members of Parliament to vote with their conscience. We ask the Speaker to use her prerogative but she put the interest of her political party ahead of parliament. This judgment also means that the threats which have been issued by Zuma and others, where they threatened the ANC MPs, fall flat now. Those MPs are free to vote and follow their conscience. Still in South Africa, President Jacob Zuma says the release of the now infamous Gupta emails show that the country is in fact a very transparent society and government. Parliament is to investigate allegations of state capture contained in the leaked emails that implicate various ministers, including Finance Minister Malusi Kikaba, Cooperative Governance Minister Des Van Royen, Public Service and Administration Faith Mutambi, and Mineral Resources Minister Moseben Zizwane. No deadline has been set for the inquiry to begin. Answering questions in the National Assembly. President Zuma says they are, work- they are working to establish the Commission of Inquiry as soon as possible. The very fact that their emails or their 
And finally, councils in Britain say around 600 tower blocks in London have cladding similar to that which is being blamed for the Grenfell Tower fire in the west of the city last week. At least 79 people are dead or missing. Earlier, Prime Minister Theresa May told Parliament that tests had revealed that a number of publicly owned high-rise blocks had combustible cladding. Housing spokesperson for Britain's main opposition Labour Party, John Healy, says May has left many key questions unanswered. What's clear is that safety checks have to be completed on all 4,000 of the high-rise town blocks, not just on the cladding, which is what the Prime Minister talked about, but also on the other fire safety methods, and on the question of whether or not each flat is properly separate and therefore fully safe as they're designed to be. So there's some quite serious checks. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. It's 5.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Digest. In our top story, the United Democratic Movement's request that a secret ballot be used in a motion of no confidence in South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has been referred back to the Speaker of the National Assembly for a fresh decision. The party approached the Constitutional Court seeking clarity on whether or not Speaker Balegambete has powers to allow a secret ballot as well as an order that she be instructed to allow the practice when a motion of no confidence against President Zuma is tabled. The application has also been supported by other opposition parties and civil society groupings. Chief Justice Mukhweng Mukhweng delivered his judgment earlier today. Amos Pajo has more.
though it is implied. It may be passed by an ordinary as opposed to a two-thirds majority of members of the National Assembly. Unlike an impeachment that targets only the President, a motion of no confidence does not spare the Deputy President, Ministers and Deputy Ministers of adverse consequences. And the Constitution does not say when and on what grounds it would be fitting to seek refuge in a motion of no confidence. Regarding clarity on whether Speaker of the National Assembly has or does not have powers to prescribe the voting methods, the Chief Justice says the issue is properly explained under Rule 104 and 103 of the National Assembly. He says the Speaker of the National Assembly, Valerie Burton, was mistaken to say she has no powers to prescribe a secret ballot during a motion of no confidence debate. To this extent, she was mistaken. Our interpretation of the relevant provisions of the Constitution and the rules make it clear that the Speaker does have the power to authorize a vote by a secret ballot in a motion of no confidence proceedings against the President in appropriate circumstances. The exercise of that power must be duly guided by the need to enable effective accountability, which is in the best interest of the people and obedience to the Constitution. To the extent that the Tawama decision might have been understood to have held that a secret ballot procedure is not at all constitutionally permissible, that understanding is incorrect. The Speaker's decision was invalid and must be set aside. Another reason by parties that the court orders the Speaker to prescribe a secret ballot during the motion of no confidence debate, the Chief Justice ruled that the request imposed on the separation of powers between Parliament and the judiciary. It would thus be inappropriate to order the Speaker to have the motion of no confidence in the President conducted by secret ballot as if she ever said that she would not do so, even if she had the power to do so, and even if circumstances plainly cry out for it. To order a secret ballot would change separation of powers. Whether the proceedings are to be by secret ballot is a power that rests firmly in the hands of the Speaker, but exercisable, subject to crucial factors that are appropriately seasoned with considerations of rationality. This court cannot assume that she will not act in line with the legal position and conditionalities as now clarified by this court. The President and the Speaker of the National Assembly have also been ordered to pay the cost of the applicants and payment power in Johannesburg. South African political analyst Dr. Somadota Figeni says it's highly likely that the Speaker of Parliament, Balegambete, will adopt the secret voting ballot system in the motion of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma. Figeni earlier spoke to Channel Africa.
That was Dr. Somato Dafigeni, political analyst, on the line speaking to Zikona Miso.
It's 17.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Digest coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Thursday, June the 22nd, the 173rd day of 2017 with 192 days left in the year. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 2005. Former South African Minister of Minerals and Energy Pumzile Mlambonguka was appointed as first woman deputy president in South Africa. She replaced Jacob Zuma, who had been fired from his position by President Thabo Mbeki for his alleged corrupt relations with businessman Shabir Sheikh. Sheikh had been found guilty by the Durban High Court and his testimony had implicated Zuma. That was today in history in the year 2005. Human rights organization Amnesty International says the European Union must stop cooperating with the Libyan Coast Guard in returning refugees and migrants on the Mediterranean back to Libya, as this has led to them being tortured and abused. The organization says once returned to Libya, migrants face imprisonment in Libyan jails and detention camps where conditions are severe. The Libyan Coast Guard forces have been accused of abusing refugees in the past, even before bringing them back to shore. Channel Africa spoke to Iverna McGowan, director of the Amnesty International European Institution's office, and she has more on the plight of refugees and migrants that have been returned back to Libya. First of all, the Libyan Coast Guard has been shown not to meet international standards in the manner in which it's um, conducting uh, those operations. But more worryingly, what's happening is the EU is allowing the Libyan Coast Guard to return refugees and migrants back to Libya, where we know they're going into unlawful detention and, detention and sometimes also facing torture and rape. This is a highly worrying situation. Now, you say that interceptions uh, by the Libyan Coast Guard have often disregarded international standards, including by using firearms. Do we know how long this practice of abuse in detention centers has been going on for you, Bella? So, yes, I mean, we have to remember people who are coming on unseaworthy boats, they're very frightened and scared. It's so important that those rescue operations are conducted in a calm way and in a way that focuses on saving lives. If you use firearms or other threatening things, that can actually lead to panic and people even drowning at sea. So that's why we're really putting emphasis on best practice and highest standards in terms of search and rescue. As we know, very unfortunately, the situation in Libya has been uh, very, very bad for many years now. We have uncovered in the last few years and um, over the last even few months that the situation is particularly bad for refugees and migrants. We have inhumane conditions in detention and horrific abuses, including rape and torture and malnutrition, just completely unacceptable standards. So the European Union cannot cast a blind eye to the fact that when the Libyan Coast Guard pick people up, that is the fate that will be waiting for refugees and migrants. You have made this call ahead of the European Council meeting. Are EU leaders aware of your plea and when are you expecting a response from them? So indeed, European leaders are meeting today and tomorrow um, in Brussels. 
we have made all um, members of the European Union aware of our concerns. It's been widely documented also in the media. We are hoping, of course, to have acknowledgement of the extent of the problem and to see a change in that policy. We also know, of course, that coming up in autumn there will be a meeting between the European Union and the African Union where we're also hoping to put these issues of different parts of EU, Africa, migration control and refugee control on that agenda to raise some of these and other issues as well. World Refugee Day was marked just a few days ago, Ivana. What can you say about the human rights situation of refugees? What more can be done to ensure that human rights of refugees are adequately protected? Well, absolutely. We're really in an extraordinary situation. We have now even more people on the move fleeing conflict, war and poverty than we did even during the Second uh, World War. First of all, I think what's very clear is there needs to be steps to actually stop these conflicts um, that are ongoing to ensure that there's accountability for war crimes, that these do not go on with impunity because that's the longer-term strategy for stopping people fleeing. Secondly, we really need to see more compassion in our politics and more responsibility. We need to see safe and legal pathways to protection for refugees and migrants. Nobody should be forced to put their child in an unseaworthy boat and risk their life just because they're fleeing conflict and war. That's highly problematic. Has Amnesty International made uh, the Libyan authorities aware of the situation on the ground? Absolutely. Amnesty International, of course, is an international organization. Uh, we make it our duty to make all uh, governments and relevant parties aware of what's happening. Uh, but we do also have to acknowledge, of course, that um, this, the new Libyan authorities are uh, they're relatively new. They're dealing with the scale of the problem. They need support from the international community as well. We're not going to overnight uh, improve the situation. In some countries, it takes as long as 20 years to put an effective asylum system in place. So that is why we're really appealing to countries uh, such as in the EU, do not, um, you know, don't put your focus on actually returning more migrants and refugees to that impossible situation. Put your emphasis on supporting that country to improve its human rights situation, to improve the rule of law, and also by taking the fair share of refugees and migrants uh, to European countries. That was Iverna McGowan, Director of Amnesty International European Institutions Office on the line from London in the United Kingdom, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjelele. United Nations Children's Fund says famine has eased in South Sudan after a significant scale-up in the humanitarian response. However, the situation remains dire across the country as the number of people struggling to find enough food each day has grown. UNICEF says the gains made in the famine-affected countries show what can be achieved when sustained assistance reaches families. More from James Alder, Regional Communications Spokesperson at UNICEF.
to 6 million. That's more than one in two South Sudanese, and it's a million more than when we last had this data in February. So really what this has very clearly showed is that when donors respond quickly, and importantly when access is available, when organisations like UNICEF can reach those most in need because this is a very dangerous country to operate in, then emergency aid saves lots of lives. The crisis or the conditions continue to worsen. A bleak picture, isn't it? Yeah, it, unfortunately, it's a very big picture. We must never forget that this lack of food is a critical issue. But it's dirty water that will kill most children. So we're talking about health care in a country where the system is decimated. And things like and a lack of clean, safe water will leave hundreds of thousands of children on the cusp of catastrophe. So this latest nutrition data tells us a good story that famine has ebbed in that area. But nationwide, in fact, the situation is worse. So it's really key to remember that gains made can be very quickly reversed in that state where there's no longer the formal declaration of famine. So people's ability to feed themselves, to care for their children, has absolutely been, been decimated. Agencies and I would say selfless aid workers in dangerous and difficult places have done a remarkable job in keeping people alive, but there is much more to do. And that starts with an end to the conflict so that people, South Sudanese, can again, again take control of their lives. And of course, the situation is expected to further deteriorate as the Olympic season um, approaches now in July. But when we talk about um, the response um, that South Sudan has had during this time, talk us briefly about that. Have we seen um, a response from um, you know, um, donors and, and, and governments around the world? Uh, yes, we, UNICEF is the first to appreciate this is a very crowded market when it comes to donor funds. There's a migration crisis in Europe, there's this because of the Syria crisis, and there is South Sudan. Uh, Organisations like the European Union, like the Government of Japan, like USAID, like the UK's Department for International Development, have been really terrific in the speed of their response since this famine declaration in February. But the need is enormous, and it's very important that these governments, additional governments, regional governments who have political pressure, continue to, to step up and take a responsibility. Because we know, unfortunately, as you say, the lean season is, is coming. Uh, more than a 1,000 children from South Sudan are fleeing on average every single day. This is a crisis that unfortunately is not going anywhere. And while the people of South Sudan have done everything they possibly can uh, amid situations that are well out of their control, they need support right now. They need a leg up at this most desperate of times. Talk us through perhaps some of the challenges that you come across as you provide aid from UNICEF's perspective. I think the most clear challenges um, in providing aid in South Sudan are around security. South Sudan is officially the most dangerous place to be an aid worker. Far too many aid workers have been killed in South Sudan. So whilst UNICEF will go anywhere where children are vulnerable and in need, we do need to protect our own staff. We, we can't operate when staff are at that grave risk. So this is a responsibility, of course, of the government of South Sudan and of the opposition to ensure safety and to ensure access. One of the reasons why there's no longer a formal declaration of famine in this area of South Sudan is because we suddenly had access to it. Conflict is spread across this country and we need access to all parts so that we can reach all those children. That's a very, a very first and foremost challenge. The second one, of course, is simply the enormity of need. Uh, UNICEF, our work revolves around nutrition of children, providing clean water, providing vaccines, 
and showing children are in school, remembering that there are more children out of school per capita in South Sudan than any other country, trying to protect children from violence, um, and the same sort of work with women. It's an enormous mandate in a country with enormous need. So our funding situation is always uh, tricky, and we're always grateful for those donors that step up, but we know money spent now saves money and saves lives. That was James Alder, Regional Communications Spokesperson at the United Nations Children's Fund, speaking to Khomutsomo Pulane. It's 5.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Digest. Our headlines up next with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, at least 12 people have been killed in northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo in heavy firefights between the army and militia fighters. South, Africa, South Africa's parliament says it will abide by the Constitutional Court's ruling that National Assembly Speaker Balekambete will be responsible for the decision on whether a motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma takes place via secret ballot. And finally, councils in Britain say around 600 tower blocks in London have cladding similar to that which is being blamed for the Grenfell Tower fire in the west of the city last week. For Channel Africa, I'm Jorani Chulo. Thank you, Jalani. Now, the South African Human Rights Commission in the Gauteng province yesterday launched a complaints platform tailor-made for children and young people called the Child-Friendly Space. Increasingly, evidence is showing that children and young people experience particular barriers to accessing complaints systems. Independent inquiries into child abuse also consistently cite the same reasons that children and young people give for not reporting abuse. These include not knowing how or who to complain to and fear of not being believed or other repercussions if they do make a complaint. The child-friendly space is intended to bridge that gap by providing access and support to children as direct complainants to the Human Rights Commission. Now, to talk more about this, we are now joined on the line by the Provincial Manager of the South African Human Rights Commission, Buang Jones. Buang, thank you so much for joining us. Now, can you elaborate further on what prompted this initiative? Well, thank you for having us. This initiative was uh, prompted by a trajectory of interventions that were undertaken by the Commission in 2014 together with UNICEF to improve access to justice for children in South Africa. And one of the decisions taken by commissioners at the time was that we need to popularize um, child-friendly complaints procedure. In addition to the current complaint sending mechanisms that we have, we need to 
have a simplified procedure aimed at empowering children to lodge complaints on their own behalf. We also need to redesign our consultation rooms so that children um, enjoy uh, um, being uh, in the environment that will allow them to, to ventilate issues that um, affect them, whether it's human rights um, violations or whether it's um, advocacy interventions that are undertaken by the Commission. Now, Buang, tell us about the system, its design, and how it works in, in the practical way. Well, practically, um, the procedure it, it guides and informs how we should handle um, uh, ch- child um complaints or complaints from children. So one of the first things that we are required to do is to ensure that we create a rapport with um, or establish a rapport with children that lodge complaints with us. We also ensure that we communicate in the language that they understand. We avoid uh, legal jargon, legalese, and speak in simple and plain English. We also afford them the opportunity to speak without fear um, or without any undue influence because they will be they will be consulted in a safe space and it also helps children to um, due to their vulnerability physical and mental to to, to, to be free to express um, concerns on on matters that affect them. So we are trying to simplify how we deal with complaints that emanate from children or that implicate uh, children's rights. So that's in a nutshell the, 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 the intention behind um, launching this uh, children uh, space at the Commission. Now, Buang, apart from the launch of uh, um, this new uh, space-friendly uh, um, environment for children to, to, to lodge their complaints or um, you know, issues that they have that they cannot really generally speak to other people about, let's speak about the systems that you've already had in place. Um, yesterday, you had an opportunity to raise awareness and uh, with regards to the existence of these um, child complaints mechanisms. How effective have these been? And what's the significant difference in terms of um, the, the systems that you've had before and the new system that you've introduced? Well, we... We piloted this um, project after our child, um, no, no, our our complaint-sending processes were gazetted um, to to sort of gauge whether they, they would have the, the desired impact, and we realized that the, there was um, a low number of complaints that were received from children. So in order to, in, uh, to ensure that there's, there's an exponential increase in the number of complaints from children, we then had to create a space or procedure that would allow children um, to, to, to lodge complaints and to participate on matters that affect them. So um, there, there, there isn't a major difference. It's just that they, 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 we've created an environment that will allow children um, just like what they have um, uh, in court, where children can testify in camera, they they have the uh, other facilities that aid the, 
them in uh, during the, 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 the testimony process. So we are also trying to, 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 to train um, colleagues uh, within the commission to handle complaints that are from children um, differently from, from our normal complaints because matters that pertain to children are always prioritized by the commission. But we've seen a low number of complaints that we received from children. So we hope that with the popularization of, of, of our child-friendly complaint sending procedure, that children will be aware firstly about their rights uh, because they are also holders and bearers of rights, but they will also be able to actively participate on matters that affect them. Because in the past, we would require um, a, a third party to, 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 to be involved to, to facilitate the, the, the consultation process. But um, we, we hope through this uh, uh, launch event and other engagements we are going to have around uh, children's rights that stakeholders in the children's sector we will also um, support this initiative and we plan to roll this out to, 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 to children across all schools in the country and in Houting um, so, so that children are able to know about their rights and they also can uh, claim their rights. Now, Buang, speaking of, of uh, children's rights and uh, you mentioned stakeholders who are work, you're working together with them, the response part of this initiative will obviously require other service providers, which uh, uh, will, will definitely include the judiciary and police. Has that relationship already been established? And on their part, is the mandate clear as to what is expected of them? in terms of um, what they need to do with regards to this whole initiative? Yes, we, we, we already have a buy-in from the Department of Justice. Um, they were invited to, uh, to the event and they acknowledged that much more still needs to be done to ensure that courts in South Africa are accessible to children and they can... Uh, from our experience as a South African Human Rights Commission with this initiative to say that it is important that all courts are child-friendly, all courts are accessible to children, uh, children, particularly those in far-flying areas and uh, who, who hardly uh, have, have uh, interface with matters relating to, 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 to the law. Um, but, but we hope that through our ongoing um, engagement with um, the Department of Justice that they, they, they will uh, fast-track this process. But we also have, we've also forced ties with other NGOs like Childline and the, the Department of Social Development and other actors in the sector to ensure that uh, children are empowered and children are encouraged to, to, to approach the commission or to, to seek recourse at other chapter nine institutions, at, um, at courts, because we have the children's court. I mean, South Africa has a highly acclaimed constitution. There's a plethora of legal framework that applies to children, but the, the, the challenges relating to children's rights and to, to, to the enjoyment of their rights persist. So it's important to uh, continue with our human rights education, to lobby for, for reform within all these institutions, particularly organs of state. 
Now, Buang, um, yeah. Buang, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but very quickly, um, with regards to reaching the children who require your services or require this platform, how are you intending to do that? Is social media going to play a big part of this, or are you going to con- work with the NGOs and other stakeholders um, that deal with children's issues on a daily basis? Most certainly, we are going to use our different social media platforms to reach uh, a a younger audience because research indicates that young people are not aware of their rights. And uh, as we embark on our Know Your Constitution campaign and our consumer literacy campaign, it is important to ensure that children are able to access our services on different social media platforms. And also, it's about time that we employ other other tools to ensure that we reach children, particularly those in, 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 in uh, peri-urban and far-flying areas. Buang, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to leave it there for now. That was the provincial manager of the South African Human Rights Commission, Buang Jones, joining us on the line. It's 5.41, which is 20 minutes before 6 o'clock this evening, and you're listening to Africa Digest. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, as governments and international organizations meet in Kampala, Uganda, to raise funds for the country's refugee response, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, says it hopes Europe European countries will pay attention to the needs in the East African nation. The Global Medical Agency warns of a looming health emergency if a long-term and more cost-effective solution is not found. Uganda is now host to over a million refugees. Jane Rabotata reports.
enforced to cut corporations due to a funding shortfall. Nearly acknowledges that the growing numbers of refugee arrivals daily is likely to have an impact on benefit corporations too. Yeah, to be honest, the numbers don't stop, and 2,000 people a day, on day after day, keep arriving across the border, which is increasing the number exponentially. And so it does, of course, have an impact on our operations. We do manage to still do a lot of medical programming in the camps. In the month of May alone, for example, MSF treated nearly 34,000 people within the camps. So that's a pretty high volume of, of consultation. And, and increasingly, though, the number of consultations we're doing are to address malaria. So we do have a concern on that level. We are managing to keep up with the population increases from a medical treatment perspective. But as MSF, we're also right now running a water treatment plant along the Nile where we are producing up to 3 million liters of water per day. And so what this does is supply the Palerina camp, which is one particular camp, for example, where 80% of that population is 100% dependent on our water. So where I think the increasing problem is going to be for MSF going forward is the numbers keep going up. Our ability to provide enough water to make sure that people have minimum requirements is going to get harder for us, that is for sure. That's on the emergency test for Uganda and doctors it's 5.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Digest. Our economics update up next with Wisani Matebula. Zimbabwe's bond notes, which uh, trade at par with the US dollar, have managed to ease liquidity shortages, but will be unable to address the country's macroeconomic imbalances when further issues of the currency will inflame inflationary pressures. This review of the Nord Bank with seven monthly government debts from the banking sector has increased since 2015. This has now been partly blamed for the protracted financial crisis that has limited credit to the economy. And we will see the strong return to something first quarter of the year after a reverse contraction of 1.4% in the last quarter of 2017. The Indian economy continued to slide further into the first quarter of 2017. The poor performance is mainly attributed to the construction, manufacturing, wholesale, and retail trade, and the cost and gesture in sectors that contracted. With its economics from the some Africa are already suffering this effect of the recession. Namibia is susceptible to further contraction. It's currently the Namibian dollars pegged to the South African bank. Alpha says its decision to take on the new public protector, which is in the report, is not about the 77 million US dollars in interest that she has ordered it to pay back, but because the report is irrational and inaccurate. After this, Kribani did not import findings from the previous investigation. The South African Reserve Bank is also planning to challenge on Kribani's report while the finance department is still weighing exposition. Access spokesperson, Sunday Zuzi. We believe that the public protector has made several errors in fact and in law, and that as a consequence, uh, had decision, her findings, and therefore her remedial actions 
insofar as they relate to APSA, are irrational and they can be set aside by, by a court. Last year, German Vice President Inondo Nina says their corporate production is poised to continue increasing owing to the expansion projects that exist in mines and greenfield projects that are ongoing. We're speaking at a mining and energy conference in the capital of Israel. So, after the economy and pay TV, the local announcement says its subsidiary, New York International Holdings, is exploring the possibility of an international US dollar bond offering. Africa's biggest listed company by market size says its subsidiary will launch a roadshow to meet potential investors. Proceeds from the offering will be used for general corporate purposes and to repay mineral international holdings. Living now, Kakyo financial indicators will go up at 1406 from the Grand's 10.19 to 9.18 in the quarter. It is also traveling 0.79 to the British pound. Commodities gold $1,252, platinum $927 to finance, and crude oil is at $44.77 per barrel. That's Thank you, Wisani. Our sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa sport news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chimani. Starting off with rugby news, South Africa have handed a prop Ruan Dreyer a first cap after entering him among four changes in the team to face France in the third and final test at Ellis Park on Saturday. Jesse Clayler returns at centre after sitting out of the second test because of concussion, and Francois Hohart and Jim Luke Dupree come in as injury replacements as the Springboks seek a whitewash of the series. Dreyer replaces France Mulhab with the Springbok first choice at tight head. Clayler regains his position after Lionel Mapoy stood in for him in the 37-15 victory at Kings Park Rugby Stadium last Saturday, which sealed the series for the home team. SA coach Alistair Coutier announced. gave his side an opportunity to build a capacity in the team.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Digest, South Africa's Constitutional Court refers the request for a motion of no confidence secret ballot back to Parliament and Amnesty International says the EU must stop cooperating with the Libyan Coast Guard in returning refugees. That wraps up Africa Rising, Africa Digest rather from myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maumit, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments on our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Now taking us to the top of the hour is Ka Ndingagutemba by Vusi Nova takes us to the top of the hour.